We actually are going to be loud and proud that everyone deserves professional development. You are not alone and we need to prioritize showing you all the time that you are not alone. Welcome to the One Up Project. Money is fuel that that allows you to do things. It doesn't need to be taboo. What you don't want to do is wake up at 65 realizing you did something you hated and have regret. Go and find people who will give you advice for nothing. This is a space for personal growth and money chat with new perspectives every Monday. This bit of content, listening to this, is going to be a small little breadcrumb of something that makes them think a little bit differently. For all the things we were never taught but should have been. At the end of the day, the most important person is yourself. And if you're not happy with your own choices, then you're never going to be happy. Kristen and Nat, thank you so much for both being here today. Really appreciate having this conversation with you both. And um, I've worked together with both of you on different things over the years. You've seen me grow. I've seen you guys grow. So it's cool to have this full circle moment and come back together to talk about sort of some developments in your lives and the work that you're both doing. So I suppose to provide a quick bit of context before we jump into it. You've both co-founded Hatch, an investing platform, um, and you both supported OneUp in its early days. And we were just talking about OneUp's inception, um, more geared towards financial literacy and how that's kind of changed over time, which is cool that we now get to have that conversation as everything has developed and changed as well. But I'm keen to hear more about your new venture power suit and what has inspired this new project for you both. Go for it, Nat. Great. Well, it, and nice I'm, to be I, here, Sarah. Thank you for having <laughs> so me. I was going to say it's one of many full circles. I imagine in five years' time we'll be circling mm. again into a new area. We started Hatch back in 2018, and that was at a point where wealth was a pretty dirty word in New Zealand. And you would remember that, Sarah, where we all kind of shied away from anything to do with money and talking about money and investing money. As a country, we had way too much of it sitting in bank accounts. And so we just saw this real need to transform how New Zealanders feel about wealth. And so over that course of that four years, we uh, grew an audience of almost 200,000 people and it was incredible. And we saw the power of behavior change when it came to changing really ingrained beliefs and myths and behaviors. And that was really, really cool to understand that the things that you need to actually address in order to address the things. So when it came to money, the ability to actually start investing was actually really easy. You just, it was very much like shopping. So the reasons people weren't doing it were quite different from what you might expect. So we got acquired in 2021 and that was amazing. We'd had an incredible change. We'd seen an incredible change. We had seen very blatantly when you start an investing platform, the gender wealth gap and saw there was a big difference in how women behaved around money and how the barriers they had to starting to grow their wealth. So when we left, we thought that was an obvious area to stay around in. So we were very close to launching a fund with some incredible women, and we wanted to invest in only companies that had a woman CEO. And there was a couple of reasons for that. Firstly, they outperform. It is known uh, across actually investing now that women companies who have diverse leadership and a higher percentage of women tend to outperform. Secondly, we knew from our time at Hatch that women are holistic investors. If we see a purpose behind where we put our money, we are much more inspired to get started. So that felt really, really nice way to engage more women with money and address the gender wealth gap. 
We did some basic due diligence around they had to be listed companies, listed on a share market, and they had to be of a big enough size to be financially stable. So they're pretty minimum standards. And we found out of all the companies in all the world listed on all the share markets, there are 156 that met our criteria, which was pretty appalling. So that led us to changing tack pretty quickly to close the gender <laughs> leadership gap because they're so intricately intertwined. And so, the, uh, I mean, I'll kick over to you now, Kristen, for the next part of the story. Yeah, well, then we, we had this hypothesis of how do we get more women running companies, you know, and actually at the C level. And so that was our initial hypothesis that was if we just um, were uh, doing all the right things, we might be able to change that number of 156. But what we learned after about four to six months of research, we spoke to hundreds of successful women and we realized very quickly that not everybody wants that top job for a number of reasons, because the system is so broken, because we have to, in many cases, adopt a different form of leadership than, than is authentic or that we like to see. Um, far too much sacrifice, far too little flexibility. In oftentimes, we can't lead in the way we want or need to lead as women with really full lives and a different style and approach. And so uh, we, we quickly realized, actually, women are leaders at all levels. And we just simply want women to be in more positions of power and influence. And that doesn't mean at the top. It means at all levels. And we knew there were real pipeline problems with women on the way up, for lack of a better term, from the first ladder rung, uh, where far more women get overlooked for that first promotion than men, uh, to the uh, pay gap throughout those steps up the ladder, um, and to women kind of checking out of the workforce because of a number of reasons. could be bad managers, it could be unable to juggle family or other care commitments, um, right to kind of not being accepted um, fully for who we are and how we want to lead. So we just thought, let's just fix that. Let's let's fix that pipeline problem and, and fix um, and support women on the inside and change the system from the inside out. And and that has been, yeah, an incredible journey over the last year. And, and we're in a place where we're still considered early stage, but we're building a fantastic movement. Mm, you definitely are. It's pretty clear how much um, impact you've already had from the things I've been seeing. And it's so interesting because the problem itself is obviously completely multi-layered like you know often when it comes to challenges like this and within financial literacy and investing you would have seen this as well it's not just about the one thing but the a million things around it and the systems and the structures that restrict um, those challenges being made easier Uh, and I'm sure it requires a range of different solutions as well to sort of get to a point where we can feel like we're making progress you both touched on something super important and I had this conversation with one of my friends recently because oh and this is just such an interesting like conversation I really hope I phrase it right but typically it seems like so many women feel that they need to adopt a masculine leadership style to be successful and I spoke to my flatmate about this and she was saying you know she has her own business and she feels like she's only seen successful examples of leadership in men because that's the idea that 
that's how to be a successful leader is to have that more, I don't know, I don't think like aggressive is the word, but just being able to tell people how it is, be blunt, not have that more empathetic side. And I sat there (laughs) and I said, I just completely disagree with that, or at least I want to completely disagree with that in the sense that I, if I want to be a leader, I want to be the most empathetic, compassionate version of myself and use that as my strength rather than see it as my weakness. And so, so often it seems like leadership is seen as innately masculine in those traits. Like, do you guys see that? What do you think of that? Yeah, well, that's what we've seen really for centuries. If you look around at all of the products that we're current, currently using or the top um largest, most successful companies in the last hundred years, they've historically been led by men, um, started and founded by men, grown by men, led by men. And um, so we've come from a place where we have typically seen that archetype of leadership. And it's that very domineering style. It's quite autocratic. It's what I say goes. And so there's no wonder um, that we it, it's we've seen it everywhere from even when we grow up to we go to conferences. And really only in the last few years have we seen conferences that now include women on panels and women speakers, but there are still mantles of men leaders. And so there's this, um, unfortunately, uh, because of the societal, um, the these traditional gender roles, men have historically p- played a much larger part in growing, building and leading businesses. And and so that has just normalized, of course. So we are now in the first generation. I think my mom was the first generation of women who could actually choose what they wanted to do, but it was still quite limited. She could be a nurse, she could be a dental hygienist, um, or she could be a teacher. But other uh, other avenues weren't really open to her. So her, when she gave birth to us, she could, while she could choose between a limited amount of options, we have endless amount of options, but we're still navigating those biases of what a leader looks like, and because it's all we've ever known for centuries. And so we are certainly in the very early days of redefining that word leadership, and what in fact, and no doubt the businesses have done exceptionally well up until now. Um, but in fact, we need a very new type of leadership going going into the future. And that says it quite nicely with kind of the complexities of the of the modern workplace and, and the future of work. Yeah, we talk about poly crises these days, this idea of we've got climate change, we've got remote and hybrid work, we've got all of these challenges that are facing organizations that the leadership style that brought us here will not solve that. You cannot solve those problems with an autocratic leadership style with one person at the top. We know better decisions are made with collaboration and empathy and all the skills that different types of leaders bring to the table. And I suppose my piece of advice for your flatmate would be something that someone told me ages ago, that we interpret leadership as a job title rather than a state of being. And if and the example I got given is watch a show like The Apprentice and really pay attention to who's influencing, who is getting a following behind them, who is leading in the way that f- causes people to follow. And it's often not the person who's been chosen as the leader. And when you actually look around you, and it's harder to see because like Kristen said, we've had a traditional structure that had men at the top of that structure. But if you actually look around you at leaders, true leaders in the sense of they are having an impact, you'll see them, for example, my mum, 
heavily influences at home and as growing up how things were done. You can look within organizations, the person who leaves and everyone else quits and they are often women because they are the leaders. And so you actually start to look, if you broaden your concept of what a leader looks like away from that very narrow definition we've all grown up with, you start to see different styles of leadership everywhere working very, very effectively. Mm. So it sounds like we need to stop viewing leadership as someone with the title of leader. Yeah. 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 Well, I think thankfully we are starting to do that. And so while, um, yeah, it's quite often the quiet ones in the background that are kind of pulling the strings and influencing to Nat's point, and that effectively is a leader. It might not be a recognized position of power, but it is a position of power um, to be able to do that. And then if we want to look at actual recognized positions of power, we live in a world, you will have heard all of these things before, women don't apply for jobs unless they know 100% of the skills, women aren't confident enough, we lack executive presence, we take career breaks, all of these excuses, these one-liners are used as examples why women aren't in the top. And what we really encourage through Power Suit for our community, taking up more space and showcasing different styles of leadership is actually all of those things are BS. Like women do apply for jobs at any stage, but what we're being told all the time through actual and uh, almost perceived, not perceived, but sort of subtle, subtle indications that are directed at us is, well, if you go and work in this organization, say I'm a white man and I want to apply for a role, great. I'm going to be in a leadership team or see a leadership team that looks and acts like me by majority. I'm going to not have to worry about juggling home and life in the same way um, that women tend to take on most of the mental load at home. I'm not going to worry, have to worry about a culture that doesn't support and understand women and having leaders who look like me. So when women apply for jobs or don't apply for jobs, we've actually got a very different decision-making model than a white man applying for the same job. Career breaks, it's not it's not quantity, it's quality when it comes to getting up in your career. So we can start to tackle some of our internalized biases ourselves and start to mm. really challenge some of those myths that we have been brought up and reinforced and reinforced and reinforced to us as we've navigated our careers and start to think, how might I change this norm because I know that these things aren't true and it does take bravery and that's why power suit exists because the challenges we face are different mm. but if we can work together and we can equip ourselves with the tools and the support crew to navigate those situations and be the first or be the only or be the person who brings other people up we actually can change the stats and we can change what leadership teams look like. It was quite it was quite interesting um, to both of your points that when we first started Power Suit, we got a little bit of pushback about it's not women that need fixing. So why are you starting with them? And it's actually the system that needs fixing and it's these C-suite and everything. But what we've seen is that's not working. There's these DEI initiatives that are effectively gender washing and someone will have the tick or they'll be doing the thing. But guess what they're doing? You talk to any CEO and you say, um, you know, we'd love to chat to you about uh, you know pay pay gap or uh, the gender leadership gap in your organization and they're going oh um, yeah that Helen has got that sorted in HR or in people and she runs an incredible diversity and inclusion committee well guess what it is women sitting on it it is women running it but they've kind of got the sense of oh it's being sorted and everything is okay and so for Nat and I 
um, we could just do more of the same and not see any traction moving from that top-down approach and kind of deconstructing the system itself um, or bias training or all, it's actually proven um, to have huge amounts of backlash and in fact moving us in a different direction. So we're actually starting with the women in the organizations and to Nat's point, supporting them to take up more space, to band together and to actually start to demand change from the inside out. And I was chatting with a, uh, a person yesterday as part of coaching that we do as part of our power sessions in Power Suit, our manual pilot program. And she was this tiny Asian, beautiful woman who is a formidable leader, quite senior level position, yet she walks into meetings and can't find her voice because she is a tiny, beautiful Asian woman. And she's like, I'm surrounded by all these men who are twice my age, who have a voice, who have executive presence, and I lack confidence. And so I just had to deconstruct her thinking process around that label that she is owning and say, actually, you're making it a you problem when it's a them problem. And you actually have to be the trailblazer in the scenario and start to show them different styles of leadership by using your voice. And so she's got some actions that she's taking away. And again, one step at a time, we can start to change it from the inside at every level. Mm, it's so hard for women in general to be able to do that, though, isn't it? Like, it takes a lot emotionally I think for someone to come to terms with the fact that this is a system that may be working against them and not feeling disempowered by that like how would you encourage people to not maybe move past but to understand that and use it to make progress themselves we all individually have internalized blame for the gender leadership gap. And every power suitor, almost I would say, actually I'm going to say without exception, we speak to, thinks that she is doing something wrong or lacks confidence or lacks some capability that she has in spades. And so for us, it is quite simple that it's reversing that thinking, like Kristen said, and actually taking the time to do it, to invest in yourself and to recognize and acknowledge that you operate in a system that wasn't designed for you. And it's not weak that you need support to navigate that system in a way that hasn't been delivered to you so far. It is a reality of being a minority in a system that wasn't designed for you. And we have been told, and it'll be interesting to see what you think, Sarah, but we, we all feel silly when we need extra support. We feel like we should just be able to do it ourselves. So our first principle is why? What, in what world do we expect anyone who is the first or only or new to something or operating in a system that wasn't designed for them to do it on their own? It's just ridiculous to expect that. So the first principle for us is no, we actually are going to be loud and proud that everyone deserves professional development, but women deserve extra because the challenges we face are harder and they're unique and they're often invisible to the people surrounding us and to the leaders of organizations. So we deserve it and we are proud of the fact that we deserve it and we are not saying that we need fixing. We are just saying we actually deserve our own playbook and that has been something that hasn't been available to us and that is not our fault. The second thing we think really strongly about is 
you are not alone and we need to prioritize showing you all the time that you are not alone. And we use tools like surrounding people with peer groups and bringing people together in a community to discuss the challenges they're facing so that they can see that those challenges are exactly the same as all the women who they're surrounded by. And from that, you get this incredible level of confidence by just realizing that all these powerful women that you look up to and admire and think of it all under control feel exactly the same way as you do when you are going about your day. And then the third thing that we feel really strongly about is, like Kristen said, we are not broken. It is not us that needs fixing, but we are stuck in the system at the moment and we need to change it from the inside, which means we need specific tools to do it. And the tools we need to navigate our career are different than the tools a white man needs to navigate his career. So when you are in a pay negotiation, you need to learn how to do it in a way that's going to actually be impactful for you. When you walk into a room and you are presenting it confidence in the way you present confidence, how do you deliver that in a way that will be interpreted as confidence? Because you don't need to change who you are. And I love the wine analogy. Someone said it to us when we were in the US recently. Don't change the bottle of wine, but sometimes you can change the wrapping so that people can understand or, or interpret where you're coming from. So for mm-hmm. us, it's, it's it's actually quite simple. And it's, it is largely about open acknowledgement that this isn't something that we should just have to quietly deal with and it's because we're at fault or we don't know what we're doing. It's actually being really upfront that we deserve this. We are the biggest untapped potential for organizations. If women were all economically uh, contributing to the level that we could, we would add $7 trillion annually to the economy. Like this is a huge money problem for businesses at the moment so and this is the best investment they could make it like research backs it so it is not something we should shy away from because it needs to be that gap needs to be closed faster than it's being closed and I think contrary to all a number of commitment uh, committees and initiatives that aren't gaining traction or we're seeing tangible outcomes and results uh, is actually become I don't know, almost a gap that we have now figured out a wedge and are genuinely solving for, which has been so interesting. And there's two reasons. I think, number one, there hasn't been a playbook for women at all levels in an organization. They tend to get that investment and support once they reach a certain level and have a certain title. Only then are they worthy of investment. Thankfully, Nat and I are from tech backgrounds, so we can figure out how to deconstruct these tools and provide them via technology at a low cost. And so they're accessible to everyone. Um, So there's this gap of that women that we are building a movement of have never been invested in or spoken to or um, been brought together or really given these tools. And the second is that we're power suit is so practical. Like this isn't theoretical. It's not a framework. You don't go to this, Um, And we might be speaking in big terms here, but at the end of the day, um, we are offering these 30 second actions at almost every touch point in our weekly newsletter, in our podcasts, when we do our power sessions in peer groups, we're actually just saying, break down this big thing into the smallest thing that you could do and take that step. And so in the case of this woman, um, I was chatting about earlier in her next meeting, you could say, be more confident. And here's a framework for how to navigate yourself in a meeting and sit properly and hold your pen properly and lower your voice. But it's actually 
jot down one thing you want to say in this meeting. You're already preparing for the meeting. Jot down the one insight that you gathered from your prep and say it. Take a breath. And at some point, at a pause in the meeting, you just say the thing and you've taken that one action, which opens a floodgate for the next action, the next action. And this is where we see change happening, which is, I think, I mean, that I think that's why Parasuit is working and gaining traction. Mm. Yeah, I really appreciate the simplicity to the approach as well. Obviously makes it feel a lot more achievable. But something that I'm quite curious about is the mention of starting with our own internalized bias and working from there. That how can we or how do you suggest people, women, women of color specifically, navigate these spaces knowing that they are working with the subconscious bias of others against them? Great question. <laughs> Great question. I mean, we always start firstly with the woman and so that they feel armed um, with, uh, we, you know, with the learning that they need uh, in order to insert themselves, in order to, as Nat mentioned, you know, have the right label on so they're interpreted in a way um, that, that fits with that setting that fits with their stakeholders um, can be anything from recognizing you're either communicating uh, how to communicate with a senior stakeholder as opposed to a team member or a colleague. Um, and then I, I suppose, so working with uh, the people themselves to kind of recognize they are in a chessboard at the moment. And we there are some actions that we need to adopt. And there are um, some things that we need to do and some tactics that are in play. And so we break those down and make it really easy. Uh, but the second and I suppose, I mean, I don't, I'm going to throw it over to you, Nat. I, I would just suggest it's time. It's actually the more we can get women backing one another, um, supporting one another, um, it's really just going to simply be time of where we flip we flip the, the concept of leadership and what that looks like. What do you think, Nat? It's yeah, I, question, think, Sarah. I think it's a great question because you're going to the heart of what we're trying to do and also that fine line of what we're trying to do. And if you are a woman of color and we've spoken to a bunch of how many people? Well, probably like a thousand women now across different levels of their careers, different cultures, different backgrounds, all sorts of stuff. The challenge you're facing specifically could feel quite different or the way it presents could feel quite different. So we've spoken to a woman who was managing a 30 something year old who was managing two 50 year old men and she from two different ethnicities. And so she had to like figure out with all the different cultural dynamics and gender dynamics and age dynamics, how she was going to do that. So rather than us tackling that problem from a, you are a young woman of color in a management situation, we actually get very specific on what exactly is the challenge you're facing right now. And when we get to the bottom of the challenge you're facing right now, then we come up with some actions, like Kristen says, small, tiny actions to tackle it. So that woman could be in quite a different situation from another woman I spoke to recently in a coaching session who is wanting to go for a promotion, but did not back herself because of a couple of um, really hard things that the promotion would bring with it. 
And so again, we had to get to the bottom of what was the thing that she was most afraid of and how could we put an action plan in place that worked for her? And that is, again, the power of technology is this mass customization that we don't have to apply a one size fits all and we don't have to apply a solution for women of color or young women or women over 50 who are facing all sorts of other discrimination or mothers returning to the office after a career break. We can get down to an individual level and understand the situation you're facing right now and how you might be best able to go mm. and tackle that. I am optimistic, though, eh? like that concept of over time. Um, I mean, if we just think of the workplace 50 years ago, it's entirely different today than it was then. And um, the fact that Nat and I can sit here as leaders, as founders in largely male dominated industries, right from the starting of my career um, through to tech. And the fact that we are here is a testament to times are changing, not as quickly as we want. But we are working with some organizations that genuinely it's an inflection point in our history that genuinely recognize diversity works. They want to survive. I mean, the whole purpose of an organization uh, is to change with the times and to progress and to, and to grow. And the only way they're going to do that is by, with diverse perspectives, with diverse uh, viewpoints and people. And so they, they genuinely, many organizations, I'm not going to say all, but those that are ready for change are are very much open to getting there. And that's evidenced by a number of fantastic organizations investing in the women that are joining Powersuit and, and that are really genuinely open to what does this look like? How can we empower these incredible assets in our organization and optimize them um, for the benefit of themselves, of society, of the organization itself? Mm, it does seem really clear that you can't, generalize any one person's experience and it's going to be influenced by a million different layers of things they've been through or seen or um, have just yet experienced throughout their lifetime and their career is there like a question that any one of us could ask ourselves to better understand who we are as leaders because um, to your point Nat's a way of being it's not necessarily a title Uh, is there a question we can ask ourselves to develop who we are as, as leaders in any particular space. We are big fans and, and, and part of what we want to do at PowerSuit is transform professional development away from this sort of one and done courses, conferences, um, big, you know, two day workshops and you walk away and kind of may or may not change something. So I want to say, no, we wouldn't ask one question. However, we would ask a couple of questions because what our goal is eventually with PowerSuit is people have power suit in their pocket on their phone and every week they commit to one action and we progressively keep improving ourselves because there's no level at which you become the perfect leader you're constantly having to improve anyway however one thing that we think is a really really powerful tool is starting to make a practice of identifying and addressing your self-limiting beliefs. And the challenge with self-limiting beliefs is they disguise themselves as facts. And you can actually ask your friends to help you with this. Every time you say something about yourself that appears to be factual, I'm not confident enough, I'm not ready to do this, I'm too busy to take on more things, whatever it is, to actively force yourself to stop, note that down, and start getting really curious about where the the root cause of that belief came from. And it's a really surprising activity when you start to really dig into 
why do I feel like this about myself? Why do I feel like I'm too afraid to take risks because failure really hurts me? There's a million of them that come out through power sessions and through our community, but actually just have making a practice of challenging some of these beliefs Mm. is probably one of the most powerful starting points all of us can take and to hold each other to account on. So next time you're around your friends and hear someone say, oh, I'm not this or I'm to this or whatever, give each other permission to pause and say, I I think this is one that you should really challenge. You should really sort of stop and wonder why you believe that about yourself because there is a good chance that that may not be true and that you've actually been led to believe that through numerous life experiences, often some pretty... uh, scarring incidents, one-off incidents that we, you know, we are biologically conditioned to really focus on negative stuff over positive stuff because of, you know, cave people times. And so we really can take on some negative criticisms or negative instances throughout our life and internalize that and Mm. limit what we can achieve because we believe things about ourselves that truly are not reflective of who we are. It's probably the biggest leadership derailer right now. We call it um, your handbrake. And until you kind of create space in yourself and get rid of the handbrake, only then can you start to accelerate into kind of your true leadership uh, identity. And so we do a lot of work as well on actually building up what that looks like. And so there isn't just one question to be like, I am this leader. Um, You know, I am a collaborative leader. That doesn't actually mean anything. So for us, it's, again, getting right down to the individual level when you're able to remove that derailer, that handbrake of these beliefs in yourself or what a leader looks like, you can only then start to go, well, what do I really value? And that that is a really critical, and we have a lot of articles on this and, and podcast and defining your values as a leader, what is really important to you uh, in, in terms of an organization and how you show up as a leader. You know, what are things that are, are critical to you that form that? That could be anything from honesty to trustworthiness to ethical to hardworking and you'll have a concept in your head of what is important to you and how you show up and are perceived as as a leader so there's these values that we can uncover and we help people to uh, identify their core values and and really think about that and then there are the strengths that we have and so we we do a little bit of work around what are your core strengths and the combination of those values and those strengths which can be a simple test um, is really starts to form who you you are as a leader and then we can work to kind of have you lean into those areas um, and your leadership identity. Yeah, I think that's really helpful. And and as you were talking, there was something that I remembered that is a common phrase often thrown around specifically within communities of women, I believe. And I'm very much keen to hear both of your thoughts on this because often it's controversial or people completely resonate with it and that's the concept of imposter syndrome (laughs) yeah (laughs) I'm very much just based on the conversation so far I feel like you will have thoughts on it and I'm Mm. interested to hear what they are do you believe in it is it a myth tell us is it a real thing We'll separate it first before I throw it over to Nat, but we love, it's so interesting that imposter syndrome is lumped with kind of all 
wobbles that humans get. And so there's a Mm -hmm. big difference between imposter syndrome and not crediting your success to where you are and feeling like a fraud and you're going to be found out. And I think 90% of women experience imposter syndrome, but men do as well. So there's the sense of I don't deserve the success I have is this Mm -hmm. uh, imposter phenomenon. And Nat Nat will explain that one. Um, But but it's actually quite different from, again, this label of, of lack of confidence. And we kind of are like, oh, yet another syndrome. So lack of confidence uh, is is the unwillingness to put your hand up. And it's that I'm not good enough. Uh, I need to be more ready. I am. It's usually like the I am not or, or um, I am like I am too. I'm not. I am too loud. I am too bossy. I am not this enough. And so there's um, quite a difference between this catch-all imposter syndrome and, and kind of separating it out, I think it's quite useful because then only then can we start to tackle where this stuff comes from and, and how to overcome it. But imposter but imposter syndrome has a really interesting uh, history, eh, Nat? Yeah, I mean, if you think about women, how many syndromes we have. We have imposter syndrome. We have a thing called rushing woman syndrome sometimes. Mm-hmm. We have superhero syndrome. If you look at women and all the syndromes that are applied to us, you'd think we'd barely be able to get out of bed every morning because we are so <laughs> deeply unwell with these medical conditions that only women seem to have. And my favorite, the earliest one I've heard of is bicycle face syndrome. I don't know if you've heard of that, but that was back when bicycles became more freely available and affordable for people. And for the first time ever, women could freely transport themselves around. So we took up cycling in a big way. This is back in, I think, the late 1800s. And this was also around the time of a lot of the movements towards women getting the right to vote. So these women would get together and cycle. Um, and they would sometimes get a little red in the face from all this exertion from cycling everywhere. And doctors got very, very panicked about this new syndrome that only affected women when they had some freedom to transport <laughs> themselves around. And imposter syndrome is another one. It actually she was uh, um, coined in the 1970s, I believe, by two women as imposter phenomenon. And there is such an important language dis- difference there. A phenomenon is a thing that may or may be not be explained by numerous factors, but it is a thing that happens to people uh, or, is a, or a thing that you notice is happening. A syndrome is something that's broken <laughs> inside you. So imposter phenomenon is like Kristen said, this idea that I don't belong, that I'm going to be found out. And when you think about that as a phenomenon that affects women more than men and women of color more than white women, and you think, hmm, I wonder what could cause that. It could be that innately, depending on how much more bias and discrimination you face in your life, you're also more likely to be sick with this illness Or it could be that it is a direct reflection of the world we live in in that when you are the first or only in a situation or you look around you and no one looks or acts like you, you are much more likely to feel like an imposter in that situation because, in fact, you are. You are the only one there who's made it in this world that was not designed for you. So I think Kristen and I, quite again, quite proudly say neither of us has imposter syndrome Because when you think about what that says, it says, I am an imposter and I am not an imposter. I am someone who has tried very hard in my life to achieve things. I have made mistakes. I don't do everything personally, but I am so offended by the idea that anyone would think I'm an imposter. And I think when you start to sort of switch that language around and say, like Kristen said, I might feel underconfident when I'm taking a step out of my comfort zone, when I'm taking a massive step up in my career, 
when I walk into a boardroom and I'm the only woman, I will feel a very logical reaction to that situation. However, we should all feel deeply offended at the idea that we are imposters because we are not. Most of us have had to work doubly as hard as other people to get where we've got. And yeah, that we slap a label that we're sick with this syndrome is just offensive to me. Yes, I think it's the ownership of the label is the biggest thing because Nat and I have had phenomenons um, in how this clinical psychologist termed it and that you have these fleeting moments of how did I get here? Oh my goodness. Or, um, Ooh, I don't know if I'm ready for that. And, and the wobbles or, or you've got this um, sense of uh, kind of um, yeah, confidence wobbles, I suppose. So we have these fleeting moments, but to actually own the label, which was really what I was trying to get across in my coaching session yesterday it's not your label to own. And so you can reject it and you can embrace feelings of uncertainty and you can embrace not being entirely accepted, but we can actually take back control, start to control our thinking around that and, and step into it anyway and start to overcome what are very natural feelings. I mean, imposter syndrome comes up as a topic all the time. And mm-hmm. it is funny how often it seems to be confused with just feelings of self-doubt. And I think a lot of people don't fully understand what imposter syndrome is or where it came yeah. from. It's just a way to easily articulate the way they feel if they're doubting their abilities or aren't sure they deserve recognition in an area. Because mm-hmm. imposter syndrome in itself feels like something we're attaching as a part of our personality like it is naturally a part of us whereas self-doubt is as you say Kristen like a fleeting feeling and I think that's probably when it becomes a little bit more dangerous for us to be attaching these like locked in labels about who we are rather than accepting that some of these emotions are just a part of being human and a natural progression Mm -hmm. of our lives. And self-awareness. And I think just even the fact that it started out in the initial research was documented as an imposter phenomenon, this phenomenon of people feeling like imposters. And somehow along the time it took to for social media to rise, uh, it turned into a syndrome. And that's not through any research or science or doctors or anything. It was a change in label that I don't know where that change in label came from. <laughs> but if you identify with feeling like an imposter sometimes, you are literally just part of this phenomenon of people who sometimes have the wobbles. It is not an illness that you have. And mm. yes, there are people who, are, you know, everything's a continuum. And some people feel their anxiety and um, worry about, you know, where they fit in the world to a bit higher extreme than others. But once you really get to the bottom of what exactly you're feeling, you can start to really tackle that in positive ways. I love talking to people as you may have figured out by the fact that I have a podcast and talk to people weekly as a part of my (laughs) (laughs) my hobby and passion project Um, but I know that you have also spoken to so many people in the pursuit of starting power suit and and understanding women's challenges and struggles as you try to unpack them and dismantle the challenges they have and the systems that they work within I'm very much Uh, interested to know if within that research and within those interviews you have come across challenges of women having issues with other women in their workplaces Mm. and feeling not supported or empowered by people who they maybe typically have admired looked up to or would see as someone like them 
Yeah, that and we absolutely have. And when we first started our interviews, we categorized as you do with um, almost with how women move through career stages. And there's and it's it's not behavioral personas, and you're not stuck in these stages. But based on a number of external and and possibly internal factors, we shape ourselves into uh, different leadership styles and how uh, we show up in the world. And so depending on if I am I happen to have very young children. I might not have a lot of help at home. I'm juggling uh, life and I am maybe not able to focus as much on my career at that given time. I might kind of inhabit uh, a very particular leadership or career style during that period of my life. If I had a, and and um, we've got a name for it, but we don't need to go into kind of the details. But there are styles that we can move in and out of. And as it pertains to women who are not supportive um, or who do not recognize gender differences and the need that women might be need slightly different professional development or different levels of support um, and have that sense of, well, all that's required is hard work and I got here and why can't they and have very little empathy or sympathy uh, for other women. Um, that again is a very particular career style and leadership approach that has been shaped over time due, due to tons of macro uh, factors. And we often, we know that women have had to fight in the past generation incredibly hard to get where uh, they are, particularly women CEOs. Like you can just imagine these women, what they had to do in order to break down every barrier and glass ceiling in their way to get to the top. They would have had to, to your point at the top of this podcast, exhibit very masculine traits. They would have had to have incredible armor to navigate some of these challenges. And as a result, they show up in a different way. And their expectation is people should follow the same path that I've had to kind of come through and they should exhibit these behaviors as well. Um, so naturally, I, I just think it's really important to recognize where a lot of these women have come from, how they've been shaped. Um, no doubt they've had some um, their own challenges, uh, but the challenge for all leaders is to kind of recognize that there are individual um, needs that we each have and individual development and investment that we each need and really embrace it all. Like there's not one way of doing it, uh, but you're absolutely spot on. Some of, uh, some of people's worst managers um, can be women, which is just it we is can be bad managers too <laughs> and i think the critical point here is the patriarchy is the thing we're all fighting we're not anti men we're not anti you know like every women can support the patriarchy and men can fight against it and we have an incredible group i think about 10 to 15% of our, our newsletter subscribers are men or people who identify as men who are really on board with being allies. And I think all of this stuff just goes to show we are all caught in the system where if you have grown up in a world where you only see one leadership style, or as a woman, that is your leadership style. You are allowed to have that leadership style. It can be really hard to see these differences and to embrace the idea that other people have a different style than you. I think the other thing we have to be really aware of when you're talking in some cases, and, and it's often not women at the top who um, kind of fight against this label of women need extra support or that women have different needs or women face different challenges. And I can only imagine, and I've experienced this to a, a, a some degree, of that label being applied to you whenever you 
achieve something to be told you only got there because you're a woman. And when you have been told that so many times, you start to really resent the idea that women have any extra needs or anything different about them because you've had to tackle that question every single time you've achieved something, it has been taken off you and you've been told it's because you hit a target or you fit a quota or you, whatever it is. And you can kind of see where it comes from. This sort of like Mm. fighting against that idea and that can come out in different ways. And sometimes we're even unaware, like I'm the same. I'm very unaware and have been at various points in my career of the things that I was facing that other people weren't facing because this is the challenge with big change is that some of the stuff is invisible even to ourselves. So it's only when you reflect on it later that you're like, huh, if I was a different person, this might not have been as hard, but that's kind of a hard thing to constantly think about if you're ambitious and you're trying to work your way up. Mm. So how would you navigate moving through that as you know, some of myself who started my career as a young grad in a corporate accounting firm and, looked up to the woman in leadership with so much admiration and and respect. And I can't say I ever had this experience myself where any woman was discouraging of me or I felt like they weren't as supportive as as they could have been, but I've definitely heard stories. And I think that it would be quite um, painful to try and navigate your own growth in a space where you don't feel supported by anyone while also maybe being empathetic of the fact that they are dealing with so many of the things you spoke about and pressures on themselves to show up and be a certain person and um, also represent maybe in a lot of ways this, this thing or these people who they didn't expect to be representing when they first started out. Like how would you advise someone, especially young people coming up navigating that? Well, we've done an article in this week's newsletter, which is dropping tomorrow on how to manage your manager. And uh, it'll be up on our website by the time listeners listen to this. But there are actually, we can start to take action of what we need and how we're feeling in the workforce, rather than just kind of sit back and, and feel like a rudderless ship in a way. And so there's really small tactics that we can start to do. It can be as simple as asking for what you need, because quite often, I think our expectation is everyone should know how I like to be managed and what I need and that I need feedback, but are you asking for it? So I think just broadly, uh, we can start to change people's mindset to going, you can actually take some control here. And there's some really easy tools and things that you can do to start to uh, articulate who you are, why your work matters And what is it that you need in the workplace? So that's the first thing is taking back control. But the second and really instrumental ingredient that we learn to successful leaders is having their own personal board of directors and having your tribe that is supporting you through these things. And so all of these incredible women we spoke to, they had a range of personal board of directors of a group of people around them or an ecosystem around them that genuinely wanted to see them succeed. So what that looked like was it could have been formal or informal mentors throughout their career. It could have been a sponsor, possibly uh, someone that really grabbed them up and put them forth for promotions. It could be an informal network of friends that you reach out to when you're having, when you need career guidance. And finally, it can be a formal 
peer group. And it can be as simple as six to eight women that get together monthly and just talk about work and nothing else but work. Uh, And we're starting to experiment with these things at PowerSuit. And so that's what we consider your personal board of directors. And I would just suggest, number one, you have control. Number two is that you don't need to do it alone and you can actually go out and actively start to identify and write a list of the people that care about you, that are invested in your success and start to pull them together, grab them for coffee. Um, You can grab them for a dinner and just go out and chat about work and just say, this is what I'm needing right now, dealing with a challenge. Can you help me nut this out? And um, those are just really some simple ingredients that we're starting, that we're kind of saying you, you can take back control. And then naturally, if all goes to shit, um, that you, you don't need to stay where you need to stay. If it's a toxic environment, if you genuinely need to get out, there are incredible organizations that want to see women thrive and succeed. Um, so there are there is a place for you if you happen to not be in the right place right now that's uh, really eroding your mental well-being once you've tried some of these things. We can sometimes think, especially when we look at someone who's in a more powerful position than us in a hierarchy, that they have all the answers and they have all the power. But quite often they are also someone who probably hasn't had a lot of investment in their leadership style. They may be quite unaware of what they're doing. They may be busy and overwhelmed and struggling themselves. So really seeing them as a human with empathy and thinking, how might I improve this dynamic rather Mm -hmm. than they're an awful person and they hate me and all the stories we tell ourselves, um, just stick with the facts what have they done that's offensive? And it could be anything from too direct feedback, cancelling one-on-ones. We hear this stuff all the time. Things that feel really uncomfortable or yucky to us, address those things and, and address them with empathy because you're talking to someone who may also be struggling or who may be completely unaware of what they're doing. And then like Kristen says, if you've given it a shot a couple of times, then you absolutely, if it's not changing anything and it's not a good place for you, leave. But Quite often we walk away before we even try and tackle it. And in some cases that's an unsafe thing to do and we don't recommend that. But in a lot of cases, it's just a bit of a difficult dynamic that really small things can get you back on track. Mm -hmm. And it may be just that they're looking at you thinking you don't present as confidently as they presented because they have a very narrow definition of what confidence looks like. You can have that conversation with them. Mm. I find something that really helps me in these circumstances where someone's actions feel almost like a personal attack is knowing that when you focus on them and have empathy for what they have possibly been through in their lived experience, which you have no idea about, it means you can take it so much less personally because you know that the way that they may be perceived to act towards you or feel towards you has actually nothing to do with who you are as a person and probably everything to do with the way that they feel about their own journey in themselves. And it does seem a little bit cliche, but I think when you think through it like that practically, it stops you from restricting your view of yourself and devaluing who you are in your own contributions, because that can be so easy to do too. Like they hate me. I'm already insecure in this corporate environment, for example, and I don't know how I'm going to progress when my manager thinks I'm useless. But actually, it's probably more a reflection on how they might be dealing with whatever it is, whatever pressure they have going on at the moment. And I think it it relates specifically to corporate environments more so in my head because there are those structural 
pressures and dynamics that maybe you don't get in other environments. Um, but I mean, obviously relates in so many different circumstances as well. But I just think that the tool that has helped me most is stop thinking about it so much as a reflection of who I am as a person and more so what it is they're going through. And with that compassion for someone else, you not only feel better about the situation because you can see yourself as this great person that has so much empathy, but also you take it less personally as who you are, as to who you are. Um, and that means that you still keep that, that confidence that could have so easily been removed through your own thought process, I suppose. Mm. I agree. I feel like most of us, I don't know about your past, we live in a feedback drought. And so we're not actually getting a lot of feedback. And I separate it out into two things. One thing is feedback, which is a gift you give someone because you genuinely want them to improve. And that has to be actionable. It has to be something that you say, hey, this piece of work, next time, can you spell check it more? Or I mean, that's a very simple example, but something like that. The other side is criticism, where it's a big, broad, sweeping, targeted, mean comment. Um, and we get this a lot with power suiters. People, um, you know, I heard someone yesterday being told by someone she'd never be a good leader um, or she didn't have what it takes. That, that's not feedback. That's someone else's mm. problem that they're just putting on you. Mm. But when it comes to feedback, and I loved your example, maybe for the wrong reasons, that idea of my manager hates me and this, like that's a story in your head. Your manager may or may not hate you. You actually don't know that. What you do know is that they have given you either feedback or criticism. And if it's criticism, the easiest thing you can do is say, how can I change? What And actually ask them, what action can I change to make this better and if they don't have an answer or if they can't point to any examples banish it from your mind because that's not feedback that's someone else's problem if they've given you feedback we live in a feedback drought which often means someone might give you something that is genuinely designed to help you improve and they may have delivered it a bit bluntly they may have delivered it in a way that you're not used to hearing and that can feel very confronting but if you actually stop take a step back get your professional board of directors around you if you need and really take that emotion out and don't tell yourself those stories about them hating you or them trying to make you fail or them undermining you and just stick with what they said and really get to the bottom of it there may be a gem there that actually is something that you can improve and it's not about improving you as a person and it's not about telling you that you are broken it's just that there may be a thing that you can do differently and that's actually kind of cool that you learn that but because we don't get a lot of it, anything can feel like an attack sometimes. And that's actually not always the case. And sometimes it is worth, especially if you don't get feedback regularly, especially if like a lot of us, we're surrounded by friends who have our back completely and would never tell us anything that we could potentially improve. Um, that, that, that maybe the confronting this feeling of they hate me is actually in our heads. And they've actually just tried to give us a gift, potentially not very well, but that it's worth kind of getting curious about rather than winding ourselves up into this idea that we are broken and they hate us and everything's terrible and confidence is through the floor, all that sort of stuff that that can actually, that's all on you. That's not on them. <laughs> Nan Kristen, thank you so much for your time today. I have really appreciated having you on the pod. 
Yes, it's been so good chatting. And I mean, I love what you're doing, obviously. I think it's extremely important. And this, it's an interesting conversation overall because of all the layers. And you could talk about it, as I'm sure you guys both have, for a million <laughs> hours across many different um, groups of people and, and niching it down in many different ways. But I love that we've started it today and hopefully we can continue it into the future. Um, yeah, again, appreciate your contributions and thanks for coming on to the podcast. Thanks. Thanks, Sarah. Always to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The One Up Project. If you want to find more stuff just like this, check out our other apps or follow us at The One Up Project on Instagram or TikTok. See you there.